Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this beautiful passage in Scripture, Lord, about love. Oh God, your love. We just thank you once again that you are a God of love and you love us so much, Lord. I just pray now, Father God, um, for this time, Lord. I just pray, God, that you will speak through me. I just pray, Jesus, you will have your way now in me, Lord. If there's anything that you don't want me to say, just pray that it won't pass my lips, Lord. I just pray, Father God, that if there's anything that I speak that you didn't want me to, then I just pray, Father God, that people will forget it, Lord. I just pray, God, that this time will really honour you, because that's why we do this, is to honour and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I start our time of study this morning, I have to confess something. So... Doug asked me to bring the words last week when we found out, unfortunately, that John couldn't make it. And I knew that the topic was going to be on love and that love is patient and kind. And I liked to think that I was quite a patient person. You know, I work with children and as lovely as they are, you do have to be quite patient. You have to have a certain temperament. So I thought I could safely class myself as quite a patient person. And it wasn't until last Tuesday that actually this got tested. And it all started when my lovely mother asked the question, Laura, can you show me how to do this on the computer? Um, It turns out I'm not quite as patient as I thought I was. Um, And the bitter irony of it all was that that question came as I was studying for this morning. So after sort of about 10 minutes of to-in and fro-in, nearly pulling my hair out and saying, have you got it now? You understand how to do it? That's fine. I go back to my computer and I see, oh, patience. Okay. (laughs) And I thought I was patient, but God showed me otherwise. He said, you are not as patient with people as you like to think you are. Yes, I was disciplined. Um, It's okay. It's the child he loves, he disciplines. So I will rejoice over that. So for the next few weeks, as I said in our introduction, we are going to be studying all about love, using 1 Corinthians 13 as our base. And in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church based in Corinth in the first century, he writes all about love. And if you read Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, you will discover that this was a church with a lot of problems. And they had a rather large problem with pride. So people boasting about things that they had done. Um, And Paul starts his passage by saying that actually everything we we do should be done in love. It shouldn't be drawing attention to ourselves. It should be drawing attention to him. All that we do should be done in love. And he starts off his letter by listing some very spiritual-sounding things. He says, um, if, the, he, if I talk in all the languages of the world and of angels, he mentions giving away everything he owns to the poor. He talks about giving up his body to be burnt on the stake as a martyr. He talks about all these things, and all these things sound really, really impressive. But he says, actually, if none of these things are done in love, then you are just like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. You're like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If you don't do these things with love, that is what you are like. 
Now, I don't know if any of you have been around a clanging, a, a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal both simultaneously, um, but I, I'd hazard a guess that if you were around that, you'd, you'd exit pretty sharpish. Nobody wants to be around a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And Paul says that actually, even if you do all these things, if you're not doing them with the right motives, if you're not doing them out of love, then it's pointless. It's a waste of time. And actually, you are like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Nobody wants to be around a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. That's not good. Now, this is a story that's stuck in my head over the years. And it's about two politicians, two British politicians, um, Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone. Now, both these gentlemen had hugely successful political careers. Both of them did. And they were both prime ministers. And the position of power would sort of oscillate to go back and forth between the two. And the story goes that a lady called Jenny Jerome, who was actually Winston Churchill's mother, um, dined with both politicians a week before the general election. And when the journalist asked the lady what her impression of the two men was, she had this to say. She said, when I left the dining room after sitting next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But when I sat next to Disraeli, I left feeling that I was the cleverest woman. <laughs> but what had happened was Disraeli had actually taken time to ask her questions and find out all about her. And Gladstone hadn't done that. He talked about himself. Now, both politicians had equally successful political careers. Both of them did. Both of them were more than capable of running the country. But for this woman, there was a difference. And it was an important difference. One woman was made to feel special. One woman was made to feel loved. Now, it's often said that people won't remember you for what you said, but they will remember the way you made them feel. Now, these things listed here in Scripture are incredible things, amazing things. But only one person would stand out. Two people could do these things, but one person would stand out, and that is the one who has love. That is the one who does it with love. So Paul writes, first of all, that love is patient and love is kind. We are called to love others in this way. But before we, we learn how to love others in this way, we need to see how God loves others in this way as he is our ultimate example. Now, the Bible says that God is love. So we could substitute that word love there for God. God is love and he is patient and he is kind with his people. Now, people who don't know God yet or maybe have been in church but perhaps aren't quite there yet, sometimes have a view of God as someone who is a bit of a moral dictator, someone who's sort of standing up in heaven, looking down and waiting to punish us, enjoying the idea that he might get to punish each and every one of us. And perhaps we have this image of, of a God who makes us feel incredible shame when we don't measure up, even though we're trying to go for God. Do you see what I mean? Now, the Bible paints God in a completely different way. God is a patient God. He is a kind God. He is a God of love. And this is shown throughout the whole Bible in the way he deals with his people. Because God supports what he says by what he does. God's actions support what he says. And he is not a God who can lie. And this is proved by what he does. 
Now, another translation of the word patient is long-suffering, which I really like, long-suffering. Or in the Greek, it's actually long-tempered, because sometimes we meet short-tempered people, but God is long-tempered. And the Bible describes God as being long-suffering. And he's long-suffering with who, do you think? Us. That's right, his people. He's long-suffering with his people. Now, you don't need me to tell you that people can be infuriating. They can. And when we read through the Bible, and actually we see how we are with God, we realize just how infuriating we are. And it's strange, actually, to read some of the Old Testament when you have a view of how ungrateful and how evil people can be. And you read how long-suffering and kind God is with his people. And to be honest, I'm so glad, I'm so grateful that he is long-suffering and patient with me um, and patient with his people because I'm not like that. I'm glad that God is not like me because actually, if God was like me, then this world wouldn't be here. I'd have had enough a long time ago. But God is patient with his people. So what does God's patience look like? What does God's long-suffering look look like? Well, right from the start of creation, we see that God is long-suffering and kind to his people. So right from the very first people God creates, we see his goodness. We see his goodness in creation. It says, now God creates, sorry, he says um, in Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the livestock, wild animals, and small animals. So God allows this couple to live in paradise. He blesses them with every good thing beyond imagination. He puts them in Eden, and it's wonderful. He gives them control of the animals and the fish, and he gives them everything they could ever need or ever want. And God is kind. He's done that for them. But he gives Adam just one warning, just one. That's it. He says, you may freely eat any fruit in the garden. He says, you can eat it. That's absolutely fine. Anything you can do, you can eat. But he says, except you cannot eat from the fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat from this fruit, you will surely die. That's it. That's the only condition God places for Adam and for Eve. And he's given them everything, and clearly, that's not something they value because they eat the fruit. The one thing God says for them not to do, they do. And God punishes them, and he sends them away, but he's still kind to them, even though they disobey God. They bring evil into this lovely, perfect world he's created. And the next book, Exodus, we see God's people called the Israelites. And they are living in slavery in Egypt. And these people are being severely mistreated. They're being beaten, were subjected to slave labor. And God sees these people and he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. And God makes it obvious that it's him who's delivered them. He sends plagues. He turns the river to blood. He sends locusts. He sends supernatural things that cannot be explained away by anything else. It's God. He makes it obvious that it's God who's rescued them. And finally, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And not only has God rescued them from slave labor, he says, I am going to send you into an amazing new land, a promised land full of milk and full of honey. And you would think at this point, they'd be on their knees praising God and thanking him for all he's done. But instead, something strange happens. 
They start grumbling. They start moaning and they start complaining. And it says that that in Exodus 14 verse 11, that they cried out to God and they said, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And they've just seen God do an incredible thing for them. And they're just showing no trust in God at all. But fortunately, our God is long-suffering. Fortunately, our God is long-tempered. And he makes a way for them. And they carry on moaning and complaining. You read this all in Exodus, how his people start moaning and complaining, are an ungrateful people. Um, They make other gods, they turn away from him. Um, But God, throughout biblical history, is always pulling the Israelites back to him. It's just a constant to and fro. fro. God is so kind to his people, and they just treat him terribly. He's very long-tempered with them. And you would think by this point, God would have said, enough, enough with mankind, But he didn't, because in all this, God had a plan. And his great love for us meant he was long-tempered with his people. Why? So that ultimately he could save them. These people who had rebelled against their loving creator, who had created havoc on the earth, and are still creating havoc on the earth, were hurting each other. God said, I love them. I hate what they do. Because don't get me wrong, God hates sin. He said, I hate what they do, but I love them. And God's plan all along from the start of creation was to save mankind and bring them to himself. And he wasn't going to do that in a distant way. His plan was to do that through himself. So Jesus came to live on earth in the flesh as a man, to walk among us, to live with us in a human body, experiencing all the emotions, all the pain that comes with that. And can we just actually stop and think for a moment how amazing that is? when you think about who God is. Because it says in Isaiah that he has a vision of God. Isaiah the prophet has a vision of God. And he says that he saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So think about that majesty of God for a moment. Think about that image in your head. Think about how worthy and how holy and how perfect that God is. Then think about what he did. Think about what he submitted himself to. Now, he could have wiped out the whole earth in a heartbeat. He could have done it, and he would have been completely justified to do it. But he didn't do that. Instead of wiping us out for our rebellion and our impatience and our petulance, he decided to be born into poverty to a teenage mother in Bethlehem. That's the majesty of God, you. He had a body just like us, He walked in our shoes and he lived among us. That's God. Just think about that for a moment. That is God. And this is the same God who people have ignored. This is the same God who we've cursed. This is the same God who we say, oh, you know what? I don't have time for you today, God. 
This is the same God. When we try praying, we fall asleep. This is the same God who, when it comes to sin, some of us say, oh, can I do this and still get away with it and go to heaven? Jesus put everything on the line for you. Everything. That's how much he loves you. This is how much God cares about each and every one of you. Even when we were enemies of God, even when we were against God, Jesus died for us. He proved time and time again, Jesus, that he was God in the flesh and he died on the cross in agony. And during that time on the cross, all our sin All the curses that we deserved were dealt with on that cross. And Jesus suffered and he died for us. And that was his plan all along. And that's why he was long-suffering with his people. And God is patient with us today because he wants us to know him. He is long-tempered with you because he wants to know you. Because he loves you intimately. And that's not me saying, oh, God loves you. It's like a blanket thing. No, he loves you individually as you are. I just really, really want you to understand that today. I just really want you to think he loves you individually. You are not an exception. You are the rule. Jesus loves you. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you're not familiar with that word repentance, that means to turn your back on things you know are wrong and follow after Jesus. Repent, turn around and follow after Jesus. Now, God's long suffering with us means something very important for how we treat other people. Okay? And I know we ha- <laughs> it's hard, but we have to be long-tempered with other people. We have to be patient with other people because God has been infinitely patient with us. And it's actually one of those things that we joke about, isn't it? We say, oh, I'm just so impatient. Or, oh, I've just got such a short fuse when it comes to so-and-so. Or, you know, sometimes we can't even wait in a line without huffing and puffing. And it's ridiculous because... We think about how patient God has been with us. And we can't even do it with other people. We can't be patient five minutes while somebody gets a coffee. And that's just a superficial thing. So how are you going to be patient with the big things? Now, Jesus sees how we treat other people. And he sees how impatient we get over other people. And I know it's hard. It is hard. Like maybe we see, you know, a brother or a sister, you know, who maybe is new to the faith. You know, it's just trying to take those first steps. And perhaps we kind of think, oh, they're getting on my nerves. You know, they, they just, they're not getting it. Um, but I have to check myself because I'm guilty of doing that. And God has been so long suffering with me that I can't do that. I can't treat another person impatiently when God has been so patient with me. I just can't. We just can't. None of us can. We don't have the right to. Now, our study this morning comes with a warning. Okay. It's called long-suffering, but it's not called eternal suffering. God's patience with us doesn't mean that we can carry on going back to the same sin over and over again without being sorry for it and saying, oh, well, God is long-suffering with me. He's patient with me. It doesn't work like that. Because when you actually understand 
deeply the price that Jesus paid on the cross. You're not going to want to keep going back to the same sin over and over again. There's a difference between fighting against a sin with God and striving with him than not actually bothering to fight at all. There is a difference. And don't forget that while God is a long-suffering and an immensely kind God, there will be a time when he will judge And we see this throughout the Bible with his people. There there comes a time when God punishes his people. And when God punishes his people, it's not nice. And this is why it is so important that we put our faith in Jesus alone and follow him. It's so important. Because there will come a time when it'll be too late. And that, that, that makes me so sad. But there will come a time when we leave this earth. And there will come a time when we have to give an account of our lives to this holy, just, amazing God. And those who have died trusting in Jesus will go and be with God forever. And it's going to be wonderful. But those who have ignored, rejected and put off knowing Jesus until it was too late will be punished forever. And I don't want that to happen to any of you. So seriously, if you haven't made that commitment yet in your life and you want to, there'll be a time afterwards where you can. Because it's... You know, it's really pressing. Like, you don't have time. You don't know. Like, you could go out there today and die. You don't know. You really don't know. So God is waiting for you with open arms. And he wants you to embrace him. And he wants you to make him first in your life. He wants you to make him king and lord of all. And he's going to shower you with love. He can do with suffering for you. He can do with that cross for you. So if you're alive today and you're sitting here, which we all are, (laughs) there is nothing you've ever done that God can't forgive you for. There's nothing in your past that is so shocking, so scandalous that God won't forgive. He knows it all. You can actually go to Jesus right now and you can ask him to forgive you and you can make him your king and your best friend. And the good news is, But when you do that, Jesus will walk with you through your life. He'll be patient with you. He'll be long-suffering with you as he shapes you into being in his very image like himself. He'll always be with you and he'll never abandon you. And when you suffer, he'll be there with you because he knows what it's like. And when you're on the mountaintop as well, he'll be there with you too. So God is patient with you. He's long-suffering. He's long-tempered with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And if you've not made that decision to follow Jesus, or if there's something holding you back, then the question you have to ask yourself is, why are you making God wait? Let's pray.